I grew up watching TV. A lot of TV. My parents let me because it kept me out of the streets. And the streets of Brooklyn in the late 70s and 80s were no place for a black kid to be hanging out after school. And certainly no place for him to be hanging out after the street lights flickered on. Now, I seriously doubt that many TV critics would consider that moment in time the golden age of the small screen. But I defy anyone to say it wasn't the golden age of the TV theme song. Especially for shows that black people watched. There was the toe-tapping, uplifting theme song to the Jeffersons. To a deluxe apartment in the sky We're moving on up from Television City in Hollywood. The soul-stirring intro to good times. Good times. Good times. Knock it and hustle. Knock it and hustle. Keeping your head above water. Making a way when you can. Temporary layoff. And a little bit later came the theme song to a different world. Uh, the Aretha Franklin version, of course. I know my parents loved me. Stand behind me, come one day. And I knew the lyrics to every one of these songs. Fish don't fry in the kitchen. Beans don't burn on the grill. Took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill. I'd sing them when the shows came on and when they went off. I'd belt out a verse walking to school or waiting to catch the bus to church. Well, we're moving on up to the east side. And I'd break into full-throated renditions when playing Skelly on the blacktop and shooting hoops on the playground. Ain't we lucky we got em. Good time. <laughs> and I was not the only one. All of my friends, who hailed from every corner of the African diaspora, knew the lyrics to these songs too. And we sing them together. If one person started, the rest of us would immediately join in. And it didn't matter if you could sing or not. And most of us couldn't. We just loved the songs and the shows that inspired them. There was another show that I watched religiously as a little black kid growing up in Brooklyn. The Dukes of Hazard. Yep, The Dukes of Hazard, Starring country cousins Bo and Luke Duke. Daisy Duke with her trademark short shorts. Uncle Jesse, Boss Hog, Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane, and Cooter too. And don't forget the General Lee, Bo and Luke's 1969 Orange Dodge Charger with the doors welded shut, the Confederate flag painted on the roof, and a horn that played Dixie. The Dukes of Hazzard premiered in 1979 on CBS and ran for seven whole years, 142 episodes. And I promise you, I watched every single one. And just like the Jeffersons in Good Times, I knew the lyrics to the Dukes of Hazzard theme song, too. We all did. And I still do. Just the good old boys Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law Since the day they was born Straighten the curves Flatten the hills Someday the mountain might get them But the Lord never will 
Making their way The only way they know how That's just a little bit more Than the law will allow Just a good old boy Wouldn't change if they could Fighting the system like a true Modern day Robin Hood I never did quite perfect the rebel yell but I could slide across the hood of Uncle Lenny's car and jump feet first through the driver's side window with the best of them. But all this begs the question, what in God's name was a little black boy from Brooklyn doing in the 1980s, hopping in and out of car windows while singing a TV show theme song inspired by the Confederacy? Well, let's find out. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. The Lost Cause of the Confederacy is a revisionist pseudo-history that painted enslaved people as happy, the South as fighting for states' rights, and Confederate leaders as noble heroes. And it was effective. If you've ever heard or thought those things, it's because of this racist fairy tale that began being told almost immediately after the Civil War ended. In this episode, historian Karen Cox explains how the lost cause worked its way into our schools, our laws, and our culture. She explains to my co-host Bethany J how a group called the United Daughters of the Confederacy perpetuated this myth by erecting monuments and spreading propaganda after Reconstruction. She also illustrates how those monuments were controversial from the moment they were installed. I'm glad you could join us. Karen, thanks so much for being here today to talk with us about Confederate monuments, which is so much a part of our public conversation, but very little of that conversation is really based in the kind of depth and understanding that you have of this issue. And so we're really happy to get you here to sort of explain some things and perhaps write some misconceptions and, and make some links for us. So thank you again for being here. I'm very happy to be with you and, and help you do that. So these monuments, there's a lot of conflicting information about sort of when and where they came from. Can you tell us the story of where the vast majority of Confederate monuments came from? Monuments have been built in every single decade since the end of the Civil War. But the peak period of building was between the 1890s and World War One, And that aligns with the growth of this women's group, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which was the group primarily responsible for most of those monuments. Women have always been the people behind Confederate monuments. Initially, after the end of the Civil War, it was Ladies Memorial Associations, which were community-based groups. Those very early monuments went into cemeteries where the Confederate dead were buried. And so those were the earliest monuments. Then a second generation of women gets involved, which is the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which was formed in 1894. At that point in time, you begin to see monuments become much more publicly visible. They're very specifically being placed in the American South, where most of them are. They're on courthouse grounds. Mm. And the reason behind this is that the United Daughters of the Confederacy, I'll say UDC, or the Daughters when I talk about them, is they're interested in how Confederate memory will be preserved. Their goal at this stage in the early 20th century is vindication, to vindicate the Confederacy. 
And so in the 20th century, when those monuments are going up, it is not really about the past, but about the future. They want future generations of white Southerners to value what the Confederacy stood for. So that was definitely part of their uh, thinking in putting these monuments in such public spaces. They also were sending a message to people of color in their communities, African Americans, that you're second-class citizens. This is in the center of most southern towns, the courthouse. is where people are supposed to do their business with their local government. And here's a Confederate monument that stands outside of that building, signaling that this is a place that's operated by white men, the attorneys, the judges, the sheriffs. And white men are in charge of what happens inside this building, but obviously also outside. And of course, courthouses have so much significance, not only as the sort of center of power in communities, but also in the South as a site where many lynchings either originated or actually happened. Can you speak to that connection between lynching and the monuments and courthouses? So it's not a surprise that a lynching would occur on the grounds of a courthouse that's already signaled to the community with this monument that it is a government of white supremacy. So I had a story that can illustrate this. In Morganton, North Carolina, they had a Confederate monument. There was a manhunt for an African-American man who had allegedly attacked a young white girl from one of the local mills. And so there was a posse of people, you know, that were deputized, and they chased this man throughout the mountain area around Morganton. And when they found him, they killed him. And they laid this dead body at the base of the Confederate monument. Hmm. You couldn't be more clear about white supremacy in your community than to put a lynched body on the monument itself. And a crowd of 5,000 people showed up to ogle at this body, this dead body. It became the spectacle for a few hours until the sheriff finally removed the body from the site. It illustrates the system of white supremacy and the ways in which it affects people's behavior. You know, they would want to come out and watch this and reaffirm what these men had done. You know, we use the term and we hear the term lost cause. Can you give us a synopsis of how we might think about the lost cause. Right. So the lost cause is a term that emerged immediately after the Civil War ended. It was given the name by Edward Pollard, a journalist, Richmond journalist, who titled his book, The Lost Cause. The Lost Cause is this revisionist narrative of what the war had been about. It's saying, you know what? It was over states' rights. We didn't fight this war over slavery, even though that's what they did. This was the cause of the Confederate government, and we know that it is because Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens was really clear about what the Confederacy was about, and he wrote this cornerstone speech in 1861, only a few weeks before the Civil War erupted. Not only is the Confederacy, as as he would say, founded on the notion that, quote, the Negro is not equal to the white man— But, he said, and he wrote, quote, slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition, end quote. So that's part of the narrative of the lost cause or what we call the myths of the lost cause. It's also uh, things like, well, slavery was somehow a benign institution. White slave owners Christianized these African savages. You know, they would use that kind of language. It makes, you know, obviously heroes out of of Confederate leaders like military leaders like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Um, I call them the Teflon heroes of the Confederacy. (laughs) It's like they could do no wrong. And so there are, yeah, so there's all these myths around them that he, you know, that Robert E. Lee was a you know, a kindly gentleman who was, you know, um, didn't really support slavery. Of course, we know, like, he was a brutal slave owner. If you can 
recover from defeat through all these myths and the, through this narrative, then somehow that horrible defeat doesn't seem so bad. Edward Pollard said, and let me read from his book, The Lost Cause, he says that the South did not really have to admit defeat, but rather only what was properly decided. And for him, all that was properly decided was the restoration of the Union and a legal end to slavery. And now he's writing this in 1865, but he says it did not decide Negro equality. It did not decide Negro suffrage. It did not decide state rights. And these things which the war, the war did not decide, the Southern people still cling to. So even if you get Reconstruction Amendments, you know, we get the 14th Amendment and 15th Amendment that gives black men the right to vote. He's saying that the Southern people still cling to these ideas. He's saying, you know, it becomes about white supremacy immediately after the war. We're going to have to sustain this some other way. I'm thinking about two key moments in this early timeline of Confederate monuments. The 1875 laying of the Augusta Cornerstone and the 1890 unveiling of the Robert E. Lee Monument, which both seem to advance that lost cause narrative nationally and add layers to it. Yeah, so in the case of Richmond and the Robert E. Lee Monument, Thousands and thousands of people show up for that. And John Mitchell Jr., who's editor of the black newspaper, the Richmond Planet, he's like, oh, this is the lost cause on steroids. What he also cautioned and was alerting people to is that what the lost cause and this celebration is signaling to African-Americans is that they're beginning to dial back the progress of Reconstruction. Mm. And it's true in that year, 1890, Mississippi becomes the first state to come up with a plan. They call it the Mississippi plan that disenfranchises black men. Basically, what it involved is a poll tax to basically pay to vote. And then they had something called the understanding clause. They would read a section of the state constitution and they would have to explain what it meant. So it basically disenfranchises poor people and illiterate people from voting. And then one state after another does that. And John Mitchell saw this coming. Since we recorded this interview, the 12-ton statue of Robert E. Lee was removed from its pedestal on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. The Augusta case is interesting because at this point, Reconstruction has ended in Georgia. And almost immediately, there's this effort to move the monuments outside of cemeteries into the public square or along a public boulevard. Not necessarily at the courthouse yet, but on a boulevard. And they're saying at these unveilings, oh, well, now we're really putting all this aside. But we were right. We were right. <laughs> it's like We were right. But let's move past this sort of bitterness, yes. whatever it might be, of the war. The northern press picks up on just that let's move beyond this bitterness. And we start to see this reconciliation of the white north and south. That's true. I mean, this is the thing. If the white north wasn't also complicit in the lost cause, mm -hmm. <laughs> it may have been just relegated to the south. But the north is saying, OK, we're going to just sort of turn a blind eye to this, as you said. When the story of the Augusta Monument speech was printed in a couple of northern newspapers, they only print the good stuff about reconciliation. <laughs> they don't print the stuff where he's saying we were still right. And so once Reconstruction has ended, more and more white northerners are really being complicit in this movement of the lost cause. One of the ways in which that happens is that Beginning in the 1880s, you begin to see reunions of veterans. Yeah. White Northern veterans are really the first tourists in the post-war South. They want to visit the battlefields where they lost many of their comrades. A group of men from a New Jersey regiment came to Richmond in 1881, and they were greeted by Confederate veterans at the docks. 
they were feted and they all went out together onto these battlefields and took back souvenirs like bullets out of a tree or whatever. Things like that. Yeah. And those moments of reconciliation or those battlefield visits. And I'm thinking of, you know, the anniversaries of Gettysburg and all of these different moments that happen really only happen between the white veterans of the North and South as well. Right. The African-Americans who fought on the Union side, for the most part, are excluded from all of those memorial events. Or segregated in some way from them. Yes. So they're participating on some level in the myth making. And one of the major ones is at Arlington National Cemetery, this Confederate monument in Arlington. It was being given by the United Daughters of the Confederacy as a quote-unquote gift to the nation. Woodrow Wilson, president of the United States, was there on the speaker's platform at the unveiling. And those in attendance were veterans from both sides, from the North and the South, white women's organizations from the North and the South. And the monument itself, if interpreted as an art piece, which it is, is really a story of the lost cause, the Confederate interpretation of the Civil War. And so when you have white Northerners given their stamp of approval for that interpretation, you see where this is going. That reconciliation between the white North and white South frees up the South to pursue its agenda around African Americans, dialing back the progress made by Reconstruction and reinterpreting the whole issue of the Civil War that had been over slavery and that one of the most important outcomes was emancipation. The most important outcome Mm -hmm. was emancipation. And so... The White South couldn't do that if there was pushback from white Northerners. But there wasn't that kind of pushback. And then, of course, in popular culture, the North is very, very much complicit in the lost cause. First of all, you could look through the pages of the Confederate Veteran magazine and see advertisements for statues, for all kinds of souvenirs, for pro-Southern books about the South, for Confederate uniforms to wear at reunions, all kinds of things. And all of these are being manufactured in the North. Mm -hmm. And so they see this, I'm sure, on one level is a financial (laughs) boon for them. (laughs) windfall, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because the North has the industrial infrastructure that the South does not have. And so they manufacture these things for Southerners. Then you have sheet music. During the heyday of the Tin Pan Alley, you had music composers and lyricists who would write songs about the South that were this romanticized vision of the Old South. Dixie songs is what they were called. During World War One, for example, I think World War One really kind of marks this time in which white Northerners and white Southerners are part of the American army together again. Mm, mm-hmm. Like in, in a way, even more so than the Spanish-American War. And there are songs come out of Tin Pan Alley about the South that basically says, here are these Southern laddies, just like their dear old daddies, who are fighting men like Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. And these are songs that are being written by Jewish immigrants who'd never been to the South These were very popular songs. Irving Berlin wrote a Dixie song. The song Swanee is in that genre. Then you see early radio programs that romanticize the South that are being produced in New York. Hollywood movies, things like Birth of a Nation in 1915, all the way up to Gone with the Wind in 1939. And the most popular actress in the 30s was Shirley Temple, who appeared in films called the little colonel and the littlest rebel. And so popular culture whitewashes the history of the Civil War and becomes basically the lost cause on film. This is Teaching Hard History, and I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries. We prepare detailed show notes for each episode of this podcast so that you can use what you learn here in the classroom. You'll find relevant resources as well as a full transcript complete with links to materials mentioned by our guests. You can find them at learningforjustice.org slash podcasts. Let's return now to Bethany J's conversation with Karen Cox. 
there's this erroneous notion out there that people didn't begin to protest Confederate monuments until the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's just not true. There have been critiques and protests around these, these symbols ever since they went up in the 19th century. You know, we hear from national leaders like Frederick Douglass, who called them monuments of folly as early as the 1870s. We hear from W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, the you know, leading black intellectual of the 20th century, who, who says a better inscription on these monuments would be, um, you know, in, honor, in memory of the men who fought to perpetuate human slavery, something along that line. But the people who really were most affected were black Southerners. And so when you get in the era of Jim Crow, people assume that, that African-Americans must not have a problem with the, you know, with these monuments because they're not protesting them then, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, and as someone who spoke like in 2013 in, in Memphis, he said, if I had tried to protest this monument when it was unveiled in 1905, I could have been lynched. Yep. And that's the issue. It's like, it's not that they were okay with these monuments, and they very likely critique them in safe spaces, in their churches, in the, in the Masonic Hall, you know, in, in their private homes. We do have examples of how people felt in the pages of the Chicago Defender, which was the leading national black newspaper, and which black Southerners purchased and circulated amongst themselves. And you see repeated critiques of Confederate symbols, but also specifically about Confederate monuments. And this is through letters to the editor of the Chicago Defender coming from black Southerners who say that these monuments are honoring traitors, traitors to the nation. These are men who took up arms against the United States. Why are they being honored? Why does the United States allow the white South to honor these traitors? A quote from your book, No Common Ground, where it's one of the readers from um, the Chicago Defender. It so clearly states the power that black citizens saw in these monuments. You say, John Upshur, a reader from Omaha, Nebraska, was troubled by what monuments taught young white Southerners. Quote, every time children of the men, Confederate veterans, look at the monuments, it gives them a greater desire to carry out the wishes of their forefathers. If those monuments weren't standing, the white South wouldn't be so encouraged to practice hate and discrimination against our people. They stand as emblems of hate and envy and shouldn't have been permitted to be erected. I just think that so perfectly encapsulates how black Southerners saw them as actively encouraging the segregationist South and also then why they become such symbolic sites for protests during the civil rights movement. You know, when you get to the civil rights era, then you begin to see some engagement with Confederate monuments following the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Meredith March that was being led between Memphis, Tennessee, and Jackson, Mississippi. And in each community, where do you uh, register to vote? At the courthouse where the Confederate monument sits, or it's in the main thoroughfare somewhere, but that's usually the center of town. And as they go through each town, that's generally where these the marchers end up. And uh, they uh, reclaim the space that these Confederate monuments have held for over 100 years on behalf of, of voting rights, of their own civil rights. And so, so you see that happening. And because of the Voting Rights Act, these communities are finally able to elect people of color to their local government you begin to see those representatives speak out about Confederate symbols in their community, whether it's the battle flag on the courthouse or the monument. You know, you brought up the lynching where the body was placed at the foot of of the monument in North Carolina. And I'm thinking of of a parallel with the death of, of Sammy Young during the Civil Rights Movement and the use of the monument there by civil rights activists. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so... 1966, Sammy Young, who was 21-year-old African-American man, he was a student at uh, Tuskegee University and a member of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. 
he had gone to use the bathroom at a gas station and the gas station owner directed him to the quote unquote colored restroom. But Sammy Young was, you know, have you not heard of the Civil Rights Act? Meaning you can't do that anymore, you know. Then argument ensued and he was shot and killed. And so this white man who murdered Sammy Young was acquitted. There's this Confederate monument in the center of this park in the middle of downtown Tuskegee. This park had been designated for whites only when it was first created. That evening, after the trial was over, his fellow students at Tuskegee went down as a group, and they began to deface the monument. They got paint, black paint, and slapped paint on there. They put Sam Young's name on this Confederate monument, and they also painted the words Black Power on this monument. One young woman, we don't know her name, but she she yells, let's get all the monuments. And she met across the state of Alabama. And it's a powerful statement because it's this recognition of someone who just had grown up in this state and knows what these, you know, these monuments represent to the black community that we want to take them all down. This is the thing that I don't think people understand sometimes. You know, a group of people do not have to be protesting all the time to know what it means to their community. Yeah, yeah. As I'm listening to you speak, I was thinking, well, these monuments really become a sort of proxy to kind of attack the whole white supremacist kind of ideology. But that's really not right because the monuments really aren't a proxy. You know, they're part and parcel. You know, they, they're active in, in creating that white supremacy, you know, white supremacist ideology and maintaining it. And we see the way that the Daughters of the Confederacy and their attempts to rewrite the history of the Civil War and rewrite the history of the Old South, how that has really borne fruit in the 1950s you know, and 60s as these civil rights protests you know, ramp up in, in places like Alabama. Exactly. I mean, monuments are, are one tool in the white supremacist toolbox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's one tool um, and that is used to alert white children to this uh, narrative of the lost cause, that, that they're also learning in their textbooks in their public schools that they're also learning through a group called the Children of the Confederacy, which is the UDC's auxiliary, so that by the time they come of age in the 50s and 60s, they've learned those lessons about states' rights and about federal intrusion and into their lives as as white Southerners, and they feel I need to defend against that. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure that the teachers who are listening to us will be interested to know, you know, just how actively the Daughters of the Confederacy were working to impact what was in textbooks or creating lesson plans around monuments up until, I believe, the 1950s that the Daughters of the Confederacy were still, you know, running field trips to Confederate monuments, if I if I have that correct. They're definitely out there in the 1950s taking children to the monuments and commemorating Confederate Memorial Day, which is a day in which the white South basically reasserts its commitment to the values of the Confederacy. And, 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 you know, in a post-slavery world, that's white supremacy. They sponsor essay contests in the schools. Uh, They involve children in the rituals of Confederate Memorial Day. The UDC was so good at its, its, its influence was so strong over the textbooks that that narrative of the lost cause is still in textbooks in the 1970s. Mm. It just perpetuates itself. You know, I've interviewed women who were members of the UDC for writing my book on the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and they would talk about their family who owned slaves. They had learned this narrative. But my family, we were good to our slaves. Yeah. And to say the word we as though it's still current is kind of an interesting way for them to have thought about it. But that's because they had learned those lessons. And you still see that in a lot of historic house museums today where when they talk about uh, the number of enslaved people at the plantation, they, they will often say, oh, and 
you know, of the 87 people who enslaved people who were here, 75 of them stayed on after the after the Civil War, as though that's a testament, right, to the to the benevolence of the enslavers and not anything else that might have been uh, if impacting their choices at the time. Yeah. And there's no thought given to, well, you know, where were they going to go? You know, emancipation came and then then what? <laughs> it's such an oversimplified interpretation of, of, you know, why people may have stayed on. There's so many reasons why they would have stayed stayed on. Uh, many of them economic or their mm-hmm. families were there. We have people, obviously, in 2021 and politicians in 2021 who are repeating the lines, this lost cause narrative. Mm-hmm. Civil War was not about slavery. It was about states' rights. Robert E. Lee was a good guy. You know, those kinds of, you know, things you that you've heard. Yeah. And that lost cause narrative in so many ways is still a big part of our of our national conversations and it's useful to critically examine its origins and uh, and how it's been perpetuated in multiple fronts around the nation. If we're thinking about the continued power of the lost cause, there's a surge of monument building that comes after the year 2000. So there's 21st century Confederate monument building. Can you speak about how, you know, these more recent monuments differ from those of the early 20th century? Yeah, so... Approximately 35 new monuments built since 2000. I mean, the data that the SPLC has is being modified as they learn new things, yeah. but um, approximately that many. And in, in the 21st century, there's no need to go back to the courthouse because the UDC covered them <laughs> back in the, <laughs> in the early 20th century. But in the 21st century, they might be monuments on private property, where they can't be touched or they're at state battlefields or or something along those lines. Whereas women were the leaders of the lost cause in the early 20th century, men have become the leaders of that movement in the 21st century. Members of the neo-Confederate organizations, the sons of Confederate veterans, uh, are more likely to be involved in, in a way that they really weren't in the early 20th century. The Sons of Confederate Veterans, there's overlap between them and more blatantly white supremacist, white nationalist organizations. Is that fair to say? Yeah, there's probably some overlap between, say, the League of the South formed in 1994 and the Sons of Confederate Veterans. It's kind of interesting to me is like in the 1990s, the Sons of Confederate Veterans members would say, you know, the only reason I have to defend my heritage is because of these these characters in the Ku Klux Klan. But when when the League of the South is formed in 1994, it pushes the Sons of Confederate Veterans further right and pushes them on, on around supporting, you know, the Confederate battle flag, um, issues of, uh, you know, white supremacy and white heritage. Like, essentially, when the League of the South appoints at the Sons of Confederate Veterans and says, you know, you're not doing enough to defend white heritage, white Southern heritage. And so I think that that makes the Sons of Confederate Veterans a little more focused and on defending this. And then I do believe there's some probably cross-membership, you know, in the Sons and the League. But there's now, it's just splintered. As you know, there's so many other kinds of organizations, white nationalist groups, militia groups, that employ Confederate symbols, specifically the Confederate battle flag. And so what we saw, you know, in Charlottesville in 2017, under the ruse that we're we're showing up to defend the removal of the Robert E. Lee monument in Charlottesville, what what you saw was like a group of people who have no real ties to a Southern past. Mm-hmm. They have ties to white supremacy and white nationalism, and even they know that the monument to Robert E. Lee represents white supremacy. They didn't just pick anything to to rally around. You know that that was very specific. You see it in the Unite the Right rally. It's it's some sons of Confederate veterans, some Ku Klux Klan members, but then a lot of people who. A, aren't even from the South, and B, have no Confederate heritage to defend. Right. And then they they employ 
the Confederate battle flag as part of the symbols that you see there, along with the Nazi flag, etc. So uh, these things have begun to kind of blend together in some ways. But in the South, it's still the Sons of Confederate Veterans primarily, or now the Proud Boys. But it's always, it's generally white men. Yeah. White men are in, uh, in this, you know, defensive position um, because they feel that things like, you know, women's rights and gay rights and affirmative action, all these kinds of things have left them behind. And so they see in these monuments, in some ways, they see themselves being removed. Right. In the same way that they were used after the Civil War to sort of reaffirm white men's position <laughs> against the the tide of Reconstruction or, or emancipation, here we see them used to reaffirm white men's position against different, what they might call threats. Yes. Uh, in, and there's this belief that somehow they've been replaced. But I mean, if you look across our country, even after the Civil War now, it's like white men are still in charge. Right. Of most, you know, of, of government, of, you know, of, of corporations and, and things like that. And so white women did a lot of the, you know, the hard work of that, of trying to build up men's reputations. But white men did that themselves through the kind of legislation that was passed that um, reversed the gains of Reconstruction and, and legalizing segregation. And um, they show that over and over by, you know, during the civil rights movement, this is when state flags get changed, you know, and you put a Confederate battle flag on top of the Capitol in, in South Carolina. They already had the Confederate monument on the grounds. Here's a flag at the top of the Capitol to reaffirm that, yes, white men are in charge. Yeah, yeah. An exclamation point. One of the things that is so interesting about talking about monuments is is the way that they play into so many conversations. And as we've demonstrated just talking today, you know, conversations about lynching, conversations about the civil rights movement, but also uh, conversations about voting rights. Can you speak to the connections between the sort of modern movement to remove statues and voting rights? What people need to understand, I think, is that Confederate monuments are generally local objects. The people who raise money for them, they're in the community, they're, they're local objects. As a community has evolved in its thinking and decides, well, that doesn't really represent our community in the 21st century, they've been prohibited because of these monument laws. And so it's all tied to voting rights because there's the gerrymandering of states um, uh, that assures that you only get um, a very conservative Republican state legislature. And so in these state legislatures that are elected because they've disenfranchised people, they pass monument laws that removes local control and prevents local communities who maybe have decided amongst themselves that, yeah, we would like to remove the monument in our community. We find it divisive. Let the communities decide. You know, Virginia is an excellent example of this. And so there had been a law in the books for years and years. When the Virginia state legislature, there was a changing of the guard and there was now a Democratic majority, that law got changed. And so the law, the monument law now returned local control. The reason why Virginia's had the most monument removals is because the law changed and restored local control. And then in South Carolina and also in Tennessee, there are two-thirds supermajorities required to change the law. <laughs> These places are so gerrymandered, you're, you can't elect officials. that Those laws are never going to change. Right. And so there is no real sense that, that people have power to make change through legal means. And so it's led to frustration. It's led to people vandalizing monuments. So the laws that are intended to protect monuments actually lead to their being vandalized hmm. because they've taken away local control and the ability for people to do anything about the law in their state because they can't elect officials because their voting rights have been undermined. Learning for Justice has a special opportunity just for educators. After listening to this episode, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast P. 
PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, mythology, all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. It's a great way to get even more out of teaching hard history. In the wake of the civil rights movement, as we get into the the 70s and 80s, monuments become a focus, right, of, of Black political leadership. Can you talk a little bit about Harvey Gantt and, and, uh, and his career in North Carolina? Harvey Gantt was the mayor of Charlotte in the mid-80s. He served two terms. People probably would best remember him from this uh, U.S. Senate campaign against Jesse Helms in 1990. Um, but he got his political start on the, the Charlotte City Council and he was the only black member of the city council. And there was a group in Charlotte that called themselves the Confederate Memorial Society. They raised money to put a Confederate marker, a monument, on the grounds of City Hall in 1977, 112 years after the Civil War. And supposedly this, the guy who was leading uh, the group had sought permission from city council, really what he, he had some backdoor conversations with a couple of the white members of the city council. But when it came up for a vote, um, Harvey Gantt had not heard about it. And he explained why it was inappropriate to be putting a Confederate monument on the grounds of City Hall in 1977, that it didn't represent ideas of of a new South City that Charlotte was trying to become. And uh, it didn't certainly didn't represent his constituents um, and, and the uh, black community of Charlotte. And so um, th- there was a lot of debate over a couple of weeks. Um, of course, the monument still went, you know, on the grounds was he was the only nay vote. But he, he was really very powerful and very eloquent. And he had a real, you know, deep understanding of history and of monuments and, and, and how that uh the kind of messages that uh, this kind of Confederate memory and lost cause had and the damage it had done to black communities, you know, throughout history. His knowledge of that was built on um, generations who came before him who felt the same way. These conversations that have been going on in the black community for decades. Yes. And, and, and so finally, you have someone with the voice of, uh, you know, of leadership, a, a political voice who can say these things out loud. And he just sort of cut down that lost cause rhetoric left and right at these meetings of the of the city council. Yeah. If Harvey Gantt and his work on the on the Charlotte City Council kind of represents the possibilities of local black leadership, the Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, monument in Memphis really seems like a good example of the complications that have arisen, as you say, from removing that local control. Sure. Essentially, you know, the the city of Memphis, which now, you know, had a majority black city council. The first thing that happened was they want, they changed the name of the park. So it's no longer, you know, Forest Park. And then they wanted to go about removing uh, the monument and Tennessee state law said, well, you have to go before, you know, some state historical commission, which is basically a bunch of political appointees. You know, no public uh, government, you know, like the city government or uh, Memphis can can make these changes without approval. And so they figured out a way around that <laughs> and and sold the land to a private entity, um, a nonprofit that, that promptly removed the monument. It was such a boss move, I say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like that they they circumvented the state law. Well, then, of course, the state, these state legislators were like so furious with the city of Memphis that they like they changed the law. They doubled down on these Confederate monuments. And then they said, you know, that any like citizen could like rat them out, you know, if anybody was attempting to, you know, remove a monument. So, you know, it's become part of the culture wars of, of the GOP. It's a wedge issue that they can get people all stirred up about um, without really 
you know, having a clear understanding of the of that longer history and and the the facts um, around, um, you know, why they were put there and the purposes that they've served um, over many generations. Well, and and one of the things that happened around the Memphis protest is the slogan "Confederate Lives Matter" being <laughs> being used by those uh, defending the monument. You know, which is just a fascinating adaptation, right, of a of a racial justice uh, slogan. Of course, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, this has been a strategy, I think, over many generations. In the seventies, when Harvey Gantt was speaking out against this new Confederate monument. The guy who was responsible for the monument said, oh, well, you can't elect Harvey Gantt to be mayor because he, he doesn't really believe in equality. Mm. Okay. And then, you know, with multiculturalism, it was like, well, you use the words like African-American. And then they started calling themselves Confederate Americans. All of these are like justice movements. They're movements to be more inclusive. Then they co-opt the language to return the attention to themselves. You know, forget black lives. Let's turn it back on to white lives and talk about Confederate lives. Or, you know, blue lives matter, white lives matter. We've heard them all. All lives matter, yeah. It's a way of undermining these movements for justice, for racial justice. I think it was either in voting against the For the People Act or voting for one of the laws to ban divisive history or critical race theory in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the argument was, I am for equality, and that's why I'm voting to ban yeah. critical race theory. Or I'm for yeah. equality, and that's why I'm voting against the For the People Act. Yeah. And rather than actually thinking about and discussing real equality, we're just going to pretend as though somehow these poor put upon white people don't have any rights and we're being made to feel bad about our whiteness. And that's absolutely not what any of it's about. I mean, I don't teach critical race theory. I teach history. Mm -hmm. And if you study history, then you have to understand the significance of race and slavery and segregation and all of these things in our country that are fundamental to the history of our nation. Do you have a a good answer for those who say, by removing those monuments, you're removing history? Well, my answer that I've developed... (laughs) (laughs) I thought you might have. (laughs) ...is that, first of all, no monument ever taught a history lesson. People do that. Books provide that history. And if you were to remove a monument, that history has not been erased We will always know the history of Confederate monuments. Houses get torn down all the time that supposedly have some sort of um, historical importance. Um, But we don't lose the history of of those buildings, for example. And likewise, we wouldn't lose the history of these monuments. We know the history of these monuments. I wrote a book about them. (laughs) That history is available to everyone through photographs, through postcards, through speeches, through history books. And also that these monuments don't really speak to the Confederate history, but are really uh, about Jim Crow history. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've removed colored entrance signs or whites-only signs that are evidence of Jim Crow, and we didn't lose that history because those things are gone. And no one would want to bring those back. Well, maybe some people, but they have been removed, but that history is still available to us. And it's very possible that some communities may decide at some point in the future to exhibit them. Removal does not mean that they've been destroyed. Many of these are in uh, storage, that the ones that have been removed are in storage, until perhaps they can find a better place to exhibit them. Maybe it's the battlefield where it could be properly interpreted by the National Park Service or a state park system. So there's a variety of ways in which this could all play out. But by no means is history being erased if a monument is removed. Of course, our our listeners are largely teachers. And as teachers, we're always looking for those, you know, those great examples that we can bring into the classroom. So do you have any 
examples of the connections between the monuments and the sort of themes that we're talking about, the lost cause and white supremacy, that that you think would be really great in the classroom? My goal in the book is to make sure it's very clear that this isn't just an interpretation I'm providing, but I'm doing it using the actual documents and letting these people speak for themselves. There are lots of documents that are very clear that illustrate that monuments, Confederate memorialization, etc., is about preserving white supremacy. One of the things that connects white supremacy with Confederate monuments is the Ku Klux Klan. Confederate veterans openly use the term Anglo-Saxon supremacy. This wasn't, you know, not something that uh, future generations sort of went back and said, oh, this is about white supremacy. No, they actually, veterans openly, openly use the term Anglo-Saxon supremacy. And, you know, early Confederate organizations really valued the Ku Klux Klan of Reconstruction. And the UDC was very much uh, in favor of honoring the original Klan of Reconstruction. And this woman named Laura Martin Rose, she publishes under her husband's name, Mrs. S.E.F. Rose, and a UDC member from Mississippi. She published a little booklet on the Ku Klux Klan that was endorsed by the UDC and the Sons of Confederate Veterans, and it was a publication that was placed in school libraries. Goodness. And she said that she hoped it would inspire children, young white children, quote, with respect and admiration for the Confederate soldiers who she said were, quote, the real Ku Klux. And she goes on to talk about white supremacy. These sturdy white men of the South maintained white supremacy and secured Caucasian civilization. Their efforts helped to maintain the supremacy of the white race. So this was a, this was a little pamphlet that she wrote published in 1914, that was intended to teach um, young children. And um, that document is actually available on the Internet Archive. Of course, we'll put links for all of these resources in the show notes for this episode. Well, it's like you said about secession, right? We don't need to guess the reasons why, you know, why the South seceded. They told us, and we don't need to guess the purpose of the Daughters of the Confederacy or the Ku Klux Klan. They're telling us. They absolutely tell us. And one of the things I think it's it's important to understand is the ways in which, the again, the values of of white supremacy and the Confederacy get re uh, reaffirmed on Confederate Memorial Day. And so... One of these um, that really stood out for me was this um, on Memorial Day uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina on May 10th, 1933. So much later than, you know, that heyday of monument building. But it shows you the ways in which it, uh, Confederate Memorial Day, which usually occurs a alongside or adjacent to a Confederate monument, is still, um, you're still hearing speeches um, that that speak to that, and so uh, so this a Supreme Court justice named Harriet Clarkson. He was on the North Carolina Supreme Court. Gave a speech in which he said um, he talked about how awful Reconstruction was, which a lot of them would say, um, and he says, you know, Reconstruction was when quote millions of Negro slaves were turned loose on the prostrate white race. These political vultures. He's talking about carpetbaggers, you know, people Northerners who were there during Reconstruction. These political vultures with the illiterate Negro ruled the South, and that he even make asserts that Confederate soldiers are disfranchised in his speech. And then and he also says, essentially, following what I was saying earlier about the Mississippi plan, it, you know, North Carolina followed suit with its own change to a constitutional amendment in, a, in the General Assembly, excuse me, the General Assembly in 1899, um, that North Carolinians, as he said, it restored racial order um, in their government, founded on white supremacy through white men. So he's saying that they basically reclaimed the South 
for white supremacy. Goodness. Again, right? There, there's just no, there's no need for interpretation there. It's right there. Yes, he says it. He says it plain and, and simple. And that, that's another, um, I think one of the things that you can find and that teachers can find on, uh, on archive.org, which is the internet archive, um, are uh, Memorial Day speeches just like this one. That's where this one exists, along with uh, Miss Rose's book on the Ku Klux Klan. There's so much that we ask of, of teachers all the time, but asking them to have um, some of these really difficult conversations about race, about white supremacy, um, about issues that may be very much present in their communities is particularly hard. Can you just speak to, you know, why teachers should take this particular topic on, why it's important to talk about in the classroom? I think this is a topic that speaks to the diversity of your students and their experiences and what it may feel like for a young white student. Uh, and it's going to be different from how it may feel for a person of color or maybe a new immigrant in the community that may be in your classroom. I think it's also important that we are educating this generation of students to be thoughtful, well-informed citizens so that hopefully they can avoid the pitfalls of false narratives Mm -hmm. that get perpetuated in politics and in popular culture and the like. I think if you are to teach this and it's grounded in the source material, and this is the way I try to approach it when I'm speaking, is that I don't have to interpret this for you. Allow me to share with you the primary sources, the original documents, in which these individuals state very clearly what this means to them and what it's about. It is a heavy topic, a dark topic, a divisive topic. As heavy as it is, it's, it's, it's a responsibility that I take seriously, that I want um, to share with as many people as possible. As a historian, uh, obviously I have concerns that, that there are people who have not studied any history at all but have uninformed opinions that get us away from historical truth. I want us all to land on the historical truth and the facts that are there for us through these documents, through what people said themselves. The Confederate monuments that exist out there on the landscape have presented only one narrative for well over a hundred years. There are lessons to be learned from studying Confederate monuments, not just the one narrative that these Confederate heritage organizations have perpetuated for so many generations through the lost cause. And if people want to learn the history of the monuments, they can read your book, No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. I'm so happy that you were here with us, Dr. Cox. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. I know that this conversation will be uh, incredibly helpful as teachers think about confronting this issue in their classrooms, maybe some of which are that are in communities where this debate is is ongoing today. So thanks again for being with us. I really had a great time talking with you. Well, um, thank you. And thanks for having this conversation, because I think it's one we should have and, and do it with civility. Karen L. Cox is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She is the author of several books, including No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, and Dixie's Daughters, The United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Preservation of Confederate Culture. And you can see Dr. Cox in the recent POV documentary, The Neutral Ground, about the fight over monuments in New Orleans, Louisiana. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and more. 
You can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. In our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. Thanks to Dr. Cox for sharing her insight with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shea Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. And Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFond. If you like what you've heard, please share it with friends and colleagues. And let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, and your host for Teaching Hard History. <laughs> you, you, you.